Good morning. My name is Sarah. You can have a seat. I'm the executive pastor here at Church of the City, and I have the extreme pleasure of starting a new series this morning. Yeah, I know. Thanks. I'm actually super jazzed about it. Was that Jake? Jake, so supportive. I appreciate that. (laughs) If you have been around Church of the City at all, you will have noticed that we typically teach one book at a time or one section of scripture at a time, really digging into the background, the culture, who the author is, why they're writing, what's happening, all of the details. And the goal is to see God's goodness throughout the, the book. We've gone through the last few years, I was, I was counting it, all the books that we've done, and I, I think I've got them all. I don't know. I was running by Russell, and he was like, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's, that's about what we've done. So, you know, we're super accurate here. Uh, but we've done the book of James. We've done the book of John, Esther, First John, parts of Psalms. And then um, we've just recently completed the first teachings of Jesus, the Beatitudes, the section of blessing. Um, and we've been there um, in Matthew for the last few weeks. And in each of these sections, we've seen God's goodness breaking through the brokenness because the story in the Bible is a very broken context. It is our world. It is humans. But we see how God has brought healing and wholeness, but not always in the way that we as humans anticipate or expect. And where we're headed... I feel like there should be like bells or whistles. I am so excited. I I will try to contain myself, guys. Um, But where we're headed is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is, again, a similar story of really, really broken people, a broken context, society that is struggling, and yet God's goodness is purposefully seeping into the margins of humanity. And you see goodness and not human goodness that perhaps is like a, yeah, that's a good fix. We'll, we'll call that good. But you see God's goodness where there is wholeness and there is a level playing field for all involved. And it's exciting. The book of Ruth wrestles with a lot of big macro ideas, but on a really like micro scale. It deals with family issues, with wealthy and poor, the haves and the have-nots. Um, and male and female inequalities. And perhaps you have a bit of experience with Ruth, or you sort of know a bit of the the, um, storyline, and you would like to raise your hand at this point and say, this is a love story, I'm out. This is perfect, because I am the first person to be out at a love story. But this is so much more than a love story. There is so much more here And we miss the point entirely if we are just focusing on two individuals getting together, getting married, and having a child. That is fantastic in and of itself, but it is not the full story, which is why we are spending the bulk of this morning on background and subtext and all of the things that give us a really good understanding of when we get into the storyline and understand why the characters are doing what they're doing why God is using them, where, where is the goodness in all of this brokenness. And I think a lot of times we miss brokenness when we just read the scripture because we don't understand the background. And so today we will spend a bulk of our time just like 
it might feel a little tedious, but it's actually for our benefit, for us to see who God really is and to not um, misunderstand what God is doing in this scenario. I can be completely honest here because I don't think I have any other way of being, um, but the Old Testament doesn't always do it for me. Is anyone else? Is anyone else willing to like stand out on that far ledge? We're supposed to like love everything about the Bible. I struggle and I wrestle with a lot of things in the Old Testament, and I would much rather have maybe a letter to one of the churches in the early church in the New Testament or go through one of the Gospels, the early accounts of Jesus, it gets you jazzed up about your faith. You can track with the goodness of God. Like, you can see it. It is real, and you can connect. We have a, a much better way of connecting with our faith. And we often say in this community that we are a community of people that get together on a Sunday, midweek, that are focusing on the life and teachings of Jesus. So it begs to ask the question, why? Why the Old Testament? Why not just study, what is it, like a fourth of the book? Why do we, why do we delve into the laws and the horribly long genealogies of tribes and nations and try to figure out what's happening? And I came up with this really excellent metaphor so bear with me, because I'm actually super excited. It helped me, and I feel, I, I'm hoping that it will also clarify for you why we do this, why we jump into the, this text, um, specifically the Old Testament. So you have a friend. Everyone has a friend. A friend who loves you and cares about you and knows you really well. And they decide that they want to give you a gift. And it's the perfect gift for you. It fits you perfectly. It is exactly what you need. It's exactly what you want. This friend knows it. And they're going to get it for you. And it takes them years to get this gift. It takes them a long time. It costs them a lot. And you actually inadvertently make it harder because you don't know that this friend is giving you a gift. And so you thwart the plan three or four times. And they have to come up with a plan B, C, D, E, F. But they persevere, and they struggle, and they get this gift. And they give it to you at the perfect time, the perfect moment. You can receive it well. It is this magical experience. Both of you finally having this gift. Your friend is happy. Everything worked. You are happy. You get this gift, and you are in awe. And that would be good if the story stopped there. You would feel loved. You would feel treasured. You would feel seen. Everything would work. That friend would know they did a really great job. It all worked out beautifully, even though it cost that friend a lot. End of story, great. But think with me for just a moment. What is the difference that it makes in your mind and in your relationship with that friend when you think of them if you know how long ago that they started planning this gift, how much work that they put into it, the struggle, if you see the line connecting from the conception of this gift in this friend's mind 
to actually the road that is very rocky and through it all. And you are a part of the rocks and the valleys for this friend actually giving it to you. What does that do? What kind of depth and dimension in your friendship is that create knowing the backstory, understanding the fullness of what this friend was willing to go through in order to give you such a perfect gift? That information, the pre-story of that gift, allows you to see your friend in the fullest color and contrast. It allows you to understand that person so well. It deepens your relationship. It strengthens your love because you see that each step, this friend struggled with love to give you this, that they persevered, that this was not something that they were willing to throw their hands up and be like, Gosh, you thwarted me again. Like, this is not worth it. The perseverance of this friendship. How deep does that become for you as the friend that someone would do that for you? What does that do for your friendship? So here's where I connect it. The Old Testament is the pre-story. And the gift is Jesus. And God's love and goodness is woven throughout the entire pre-story, throughout the entire Old Testament. This book is about the highs and lows of humanity, of brokenness, of struggle, of people who are reaching out to a God that they cannot reach, and that they fall flat, and they are painfully unable to get to where they want to be in relationship with God. But it's also a story of God reaching out in love, providing a pathway forward, knowing that he needs to reach out and give us a bridge to a relationship with him. And he plans it a very long time coming. And you can see it written throughout all of scripture the way we dig into the background and understand what's happening to seek a better understanding of that love. God gave us this incredible gift to understand the fullness of who he is and the depth of his love. And that is why we choose to wrestle with a text, with something that maybe seems quite foreign and not a part of our cultural norms, is why we break it down and why we take time, and maybe it feels painful sometimes to to understand whose crop is where and who is doing what and why the border of this country is not over here. And to put that all in our head, it is because we see God in the fullness of color and contrast. And it deepens our relationship and our faith to move forward with him. So without further ado, let's dig in. The text will be up on the screen behind me, but we are starting off in Ruth. I grew up in a church where there were pews, and they had pew Bibles, and they always said, in your pew Bible, if you turn to page, yada, yada, yada. Every time I like open up my Bible and say, like, okay, if we turn to this, I want to tell you the page number. Like, <laughs> Why? That sticks with us. I, I, there's a deeper thing there. Like, I'll get into it a different time, but like the... The practices of our youth in faith stick with us. Good, bad, ugly, like, they're there. 
Mine happens to be a page number. <laughs> one of mine, maybe I should preface. <laughs> one of mine is a page number. Ruth chapter one, and we will go through uh, the first five, or five verses this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. There's a lot of information there in the first little bit that gives us a really good background understanding of what's happening. Mostly, even just like the placement of the book of Ruth. It follows the book of Judges, which Judges is a story of the 12 tribes of Israel and their seeking, their desire for justice within their tribes and um, their struggle. And it's a story of all the, of the judges that come and help and support. Every time Israel is floundering and goes away from God's law and struggles and maybe falls into um, some sort of issue with a, a neighboring enemy, and then they cry out to God and say, what is going on? Why can't we do this? You've left us. You've abandoned us. God calls up a judge, and it's usually some kind of military role that provides leadership for the people and redirects them into the ways of, of God and back to the law, and then they prosper and they do well. And then the life of that judge, he dies, and the cycle happens again. There's floundering. They walk away from the law, from God. And then they call out to God again. And it is this, it is this cycle, and it happens over and over and over in the book of Judges. And it's this big macro look at what is happening, the injustices that are happening within Israel. And during one of these cycles is when the story of Ruth takes place. And just as Judges is a macro view, Ruth is a micro view of the community, of family, of individuals, all seeking out justice. There's this feeling of instability or super temporary stability during, one of, during each reign of, of the judges. And while the people around, especially in um, a bit more rural setting, they flounder. They're seeking guidance. They feel like they're left alone. And the level of injustice for those on the margins is increasing. People get left behind. There are not provisions. There are not things that are given to those that need a little extra help care for those that are left behind. And this is the story. This is Ruth's story. She's on the margins and how God's goodness plays out in their life. Ruth is known as a pastoral literature, pastoral meaning rural farming. So this is a community that is growing their own food, has their own animals, self-contained, small, everyone knows everyone, simple living, it is not an urban context. And in the first verse, we see that there is famine. And famine in a rural context is devastating, even more so devastating than those living in an urban context. Because if you are a farmer, 
you are not only raising food for your family to eat, but you're also raising it to sell so that you can further your own family and livestock and um, your income. But if there's no food to sell, there's no income. So you can't even go and buy food somewhere else. You, your, your entire lifestyle, livelihood has been destroyed by famine. I've never been in that situation. I have lived in countries that have had famine, but that has never been my story. I have never had to make the decision on where we live based on how much food that my family has. But we're human. We can put ourselves in that place and we can recognize the instability, the fear alone. We do crazy things when we, when we are fearful and make crazy decisions when we feel like there is no hope. And this is where we are introduced to Naomi and her family. They've chosen to leave Israel. They are Jewish people. Israel is living in the promised land. This is where God has provided for them. It's supposed to be the land of milk and honey, which would mean it's supposed to be prosperous. And famine is clearly the opposite. And what does that do for the Jewish people when they are under this understanding that if they are faithful to God, that they will be provided for and be blessed. I mean, these are the undercurrents of, of the decision of Naomi and her husband that they make to leave. But the conflict within them would have been huge. They would have been looked down upon by their own community. They would have possibly been in um, fear of losing their own family land, whether they left for a season or several years, if they came back, they might not have had their own land and had to start over again. All of these things they have to process and figure out. But honestly, when it boils down to it, the knowledge of staying in the same place and knowing for certain that your family will die, as opposed to the risk and the instability and the unknown and the fear of leaving, but also with the tinge of hope that you might survive. I think we've seen that in a lot of the refugees today. That they are willing to do these horrible treks, horrible journeys with small children in, in hopes to have just this sm tiny, tiny twinge of hope that they will survive. This is where Naomi is. Now, we're not even going to get to Ruth today. We're just focusing on Naomi, but Naomi is actually such a foundational character in this story that you don't understand Ruth until you know Naomi. Like I said, she is a Jewish woman, and she had been living in Bethlehem as a part of the chosen people. But Naomi is also a woman living under a patriarchal society. And the patriarchy in this means that the man's story comes to the forefront and women always fall to the background. That a woman's value would be in relationship to a man. So you would be safe and cared for in your father's home, and then you would be handed off to your husband 
and safe and cared for in your husband's home, and those men would speak for you. But the biggest and the highest value that a woman could have in this culture would be to be a mother of sons. And Naomi achieves that. She has two. So in her society, her culture, she is a woman of value. She is married and has two sons. And they would have been so precious to her that she's living in this society. And it seems like it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that because it seems very foreign to us. Like naturally, as women, we have value inherently, not because we are associated with a man. But she's bought into this because this is what she knows. This is the only thing she knows. And so she is going to do everything that she can to save these boys because they are the, the thing that gives her value. It's the greatest achievement that she's ever had and will ever have. So it explains, they become famine refugees. They move to Moab. And I love that it just says for some time, like they just decide for some time. I want so many more details, like for the season, like what were you thinking? Maybe for two years and then you come back and like see how it is. But they probably just didn't know. They just knew the emergency is now. We don't have food now. So we're going to trek. And they would walk for about a week over, well, nearly 100 miles or so to the neighboring country of Moab, where they're outsiders. In Bethlehem, everyone knew them. They knew the customs. They were a part of the fabric of that community. Here they are at the mercy of strangers. They're navigating new culture, different religions, different laws, new languages, and I'm sure feeling very much alone. And the trauma of being hungry. They would leave everything behind in hopes of survival. But then something goes horribly wrong. Continue reading. Now Elimelech's Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Horribly wrong. After leaving their home and finding refuge in Moab, Naomi's husband dies. I feel desperate for wanting the pain of that sentence to be so much more than just like a few words. For Naomi, her safety, the man who is supposed to speak out and protect her, because she doesn't have a voice in legal matters, she can't say I'm being abused or dispute wrongdoings, and she is in a country on her own a place that she doesn't know. Like the devastation that she must have felt. The pure aloneness and just fear of what now? But she also falls back on the fact she's got her two sons and they will save her. They will speak on her behalf. As she grows old, she will be welcome in their home. 
and that at least will provide some sort of stability and hope and peace for the rest of her life, and that she can hold on to. Her sons marry two Moabite women, which, if you read the subtext and know the Jewish culture, that would have been a big heartbreak for Naomi, as a faithful, committed Jewish woman, to have her sons marry outside the faith, that would, have, that would have really wrecked her. But they are living as refugees, and her sons are as uh, at the age of wanting to marry and start their own families, and they look around, and they are in Moab, and that is, they find women who are Moabite. It makes sense, but it would have still just been another trauma heaped on top of Naomi. But then the biggest one to read in between the lines is this one, where they live together for 10 years. The sons are married. Naomi is living with them. She has two daughters-in-law. But what's missing? There's no children to speak of. 10 years is a very long time for someone to be married in this culture. I mean, honestly, it's a long time to be married in this culture that it would be the cultural norm that you would get married and have children. My husband and I waited eight years, and I will tell you the comments and the pressure. Also, I don't perform under, like, social pressure, so it just, like, made me be like, nope, it's not going to happen. But if you, if you understand, this is the culture that Naomi is living in, and she is desiring a lineage. She is desiring her family to grow. She is hoping for more boys, right? Like, this is, this is what she is hoping for. And so there is clearly an issue of infertility. Infertility, infertility my goodness. There's a lot of issues there, but it is, infertility is what we're talking about. The absence of children would have been painful for the entire family, but specifically for Naomi. And I want to highlight that because infertility isn't named here, it's seen as like a female problem. And so it would have like naturally gone to the back and perhaps not even named in this story. But I want you to know, even if it's out, not outrightly named, that the Bible isn't silent when it comes to the pain that you're experiencing, even if you're on the margins. And that is what is so beautiful about the story, because it is entirely about those on the margins. That people's pain, that God sees people's pain, it has not been forgotten just because maybe you feel like he is silent. But again, the heartache continues after enduring pain of famine refugee status, losing her husband, becoming a widow, her sons marrying outside of the Jewish faith, the heartache of no grandchildren. Now Naomi is taken to the edge with the loss of both of her sons. Any chance of peace and stability in Naomi's future died with her sons. All of the value that she once had is gone. She is now destined to live a life of poverty with no means to support herself. 
She has no male relationship to speak for her, which means she is in danger of being abused or taken advantage of. Naomi's story is often compared to the story of Job, um, which is the story of a man who also loses everything. And Job cries out to God and asks for justice. And Naomi, later in this book, cries out to God and asks for love. And I think it is so interesting how justice and love intermingle in this, in, in the cries for people who are at their very end. But Job is a man, has the opportunity to remarry. He gets back land, his crops, his animals. He has more children. He has a way to start over. And I don't by any means want you to hear that there is not still pain there in his life, because there is, because there is loss. But Naomi, she's past the years of childbearing. She has no value to another man. She, no one will want to marry her. She has no way out. Her future is locked into pain and poverty. And the book of Ruth gives us, as a church, our community, an opportunity to really engage in the injustice that is served to women. And perhaps you feel it's not as severe today, that what's happening with women. It's not as, as hard as Naomi's life. You have the opportunity to get a job, to have children on your own, actually, and like live out and be your own voice and advocate for yourself. And that is true but I wanted to list off just a few violations to women that are being done every day across this world, in this city, in this neighborhood. Sex trafficking, honor killings, female genital mutilation, banning girls from education, child marriages, female gendercide, and rape. This is a book that provides us a place to engage in the crisis of female oppression. It is also a book, and this is, this is what I am very passionate about right now, at this moment. It is a book that helps us see that the gospel, the goodness of God, is not a more perfect or a softer version of patriarchy. Patriarchy is the cultural backdrop of this story. It is not the message of the Bible. I will say that again because it's powerful. That the goodness of God, the story, his gift that he has given us, it is not a more perfect patriarchy. It is not a more perfect capitalism. It is not even a pure democracy. It is not a system in which we as humans have created. Jesus said, I'm coming to bring a kingdom that is not of this world. It is not a human construct that we have created to bring order and to govern 
that leaves people on the margins. That is not the story. That is not the gift. And it has been wrapped up and sold to us as that from a cultural background that this is who God is, that he is a male figure that is putting women underneath him. We've even seen from our recent teaching of the Sermon on the Mount that the people who find blessing, who find favor with God, this idea of his kingdom coming seems very backwards and upside down from our own view of what humanity's best is for humanity. So we are going to be struggling with some of these themes the plight of women, patriarchy specifically, the imbalance between male and female relationships. We are going to be struggling with the concept of refugee and immigrant. As Naomi is a refugee, and we will later find Ruth to be an immigrant. These are not themes or ideas that the Bible is silent on. We will look at how God is working through ordinary and socially insignificant individuals to bring goodness. I came across a quote earlier this week in my studying. It says, a life committed to God meets no insignificant turns. All of life becomes sacred. Perhaps you feel you're on the margins. Perhaps you feel like God has been silent. But you are committed to God. You are committed to this story of the ups and the downs and of God reaching out to you and providing this perfect gift. Your turns in life are not insignificant. They are sacred because God works specifically through all the brokenness. So I want to ask you two very, not big things, but two very important things for the next six weeks that we are together with Ruth and wrestling with these things. I'm going to ask you to ask the questions. I think it says ask the right questions, but I'm willing to like deal with any kind of question. I want us to wrestle with this text. I want us to ask, is this the background or is this the heart of God? Does this make sense? What doesn't sit right? What are the norms that I've accepted to be God that are perhaps culture that have just been rolled up into this is what faith is? What are the ways that our culture and even Christian culture has informed our faith instead of God's goodness? Is this a human construct or is this something that feels backwards and upside down and brings a level playing field for all? Is this a, a thing that leaves people out? It's good for the majority, but it leaves people on the margins. Or is this something that God has given us to level it out and to have value because we are his children? And then the last thing that I'd like to ask is that you look directly for the goodness of God. That it's here and it's hard to find sometimes in the brokenness, 
Naomi being a fantastic example of how in the world did she feel by losing everything with no hope, no way to get out of the bleak future that she has, but that the goodness of God is seeping purposefully into her life in the way she interacts with Ruth and Boaz, the other characters in this book, how he is bringing wholeness to a very broken and destructive situation. And this beautiful picture that God has created this plan for a perfect gift for you and I, for Naomi, for Ruth. And what that looks like as they are very ordinary and insignificant but are such a pivotal part of God's goodness. I'm really excited. I cannot even tell you. I could, but we're out of time. If you'll stand with me as we pray, um, I think that there are so many good things for our community that we can learn from Ruth, that if we are willing to wrestle with these concepts and they are hard, and they are unsettling, and they are not the norm our, that our culture will feed us. But there is the goodness of God that is seeping through this story, and it's there for us. It's a promise for us as well. God, I am so thankful for this text and for the faithfulness of Naomi and Ruth and how you are giving us such an amazing example of the lack of hope and how you are seeping into that. I think a lot of us feel very hopeless, very broken, that our future is bleak without any chance of wholeness or of health ever again, God. I pray over our community that the story of Ruth, the story of your goodness, to the margins is something that we live out every day. God, we love you and we are desperate for you and to look for your goodness. In your name, amen.